Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, February the 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program later on. We'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the opening of the African Union 35th Ordinary Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Also, the Sudanese Democratic Organizations have rejected the framework put forward by the African Union Peace and Security Council related to efforts to mediate the current impasse with the military regime. Malians demonstrated in their thousands celebrating the departure of the French ambassador from Bamako. And Rwandan students are watching the Beijing Winter Olympics through a satellite service provided by the People's Republic of China. In the second hour, we begin our annual commemoration of African American History Month, uh, founded by Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1926. We will take a closer look as well at the afternoon summit being held in Addis Ababa and the issues on the agenda for the gathering. Finally, we hear a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Director General, Dr. John Nkangason, on the public health situation on the continent. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to take a musical interlude uh, to the southern African state of Zambia uh, with the band which uh, from the album entitled Lazy Bones. Let's listen in.
Although you in love. Leave your brain.
when I got something to feed her She can't wake her own She falls for the things that I own
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music of Witch from uh, the Southern African state of Zambia uh, from their 1975 release entitled Lazy Bones. And uh, we're here uh, once again for the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, Today is Saturday, February the 5th, uh, 2022. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to move right now into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. A lead story deals with the just uh, begun uh, African Union 35th Ordinary Summit taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The summit <clears throat> comes at a time uh, when there are growing concerns about uh, insecurity on the African continent. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Musa Faki Mahatmat, said earlier today that uh, he was concerned over the security situation on the African continent. He was addressing the 35th Ordinary Session of the AU Assembly in Addis Ababa. Mahatmat said that, uh, quote, the security situation of the continent today is deeply marked by terrorism and the dangerous resurgence of unconstitutional changes of government, unquote. Chairperson of the Pan-African Bloc said terrorism and violent extremism was Africa's security challenge last year. With international terror links are embedded in East, West, and Southern Africa. The security situation on the continent now calls for a real new approach, which should question our peace and security architecture and its correlation with the new destabilizing factors in Africa, Mahatmat uh, said. The chairperson further said financing the continent's development through an energetic fight against illicit capital flows and establishment of African financial institutions remain a greater challenge to Africa. <clears throat> and in regard to uh, the situation in the uh, Republic of Sudan, the forces for freedom and change in Sudan uh, just uh, two days ago rejected a recent statement by the African Union Peace and Security Council on uh, Sudan saying it legitimizes the military coup and is inconsistent with its declared position on military coups. On January the 25th, the council welcomed the appointment of the civilian cabinet of ministers of technocrats by the military authorities in Sudan. Also, it called uh, to organize general elections in the next six to 12 months. In response, the Forces for Freedom and Change in the Republic of Sudan strongly rejected the statement, saying it holds contradictory positions that are inconsistent with the African Union's position on military coups, and it ignores the fact that this coup was directed against one of the parties to the Constitutional Declaration. The coalition further underscored that the recognition of the coup government is a recognition of the coup itself and gives it clear legitimacy. If the council has recognized the coup and its government, so what is the reason for this call for dialogue? The Peace and Security Council of the AU, in its statement on Sudan, welcomed the consultation process with the United Nations on mission to Sudan, launched to facilitate an intra-Sudanese dialogue. However, it stressed that the African Union should coordinate the international community efforts to settle the Sudanese crisis. African Union and uh, the Intergovernmental uh, on Development uh, officials, EGOT, uh, recently were in Khartoum to discuss uh, ways uh, to end the political stalemate after the coup. 
the FFC groups further stressed that the most dangerous point in the Peace and Security Council communique was the paragraph speaking about the organization of elections in Sudan within a period of six to 12 months and termed it as a unprecedented interface in Sudanese affairs. They wondered how the PSC talks about holding elections before restoring the legitimacy of the transition period and ending the coup. How can a coup government that kills its opponents every day and arrests the leaders and cadres of the political and living revolution forces uh, be entrusted with the responsibility of preparing for elections that lead to stability, security, and reconciliation, uh, the FFC said. The FFC statement marks a clear disagreement with the African Union that may complicate its plans to mediate between these Sudanese parties. The Peace and Security Council uh, played a crucial role in to strike an agreement between the Military Council and the FFC groups in August of 2019, after the al-Bashir had been overthrown. However, the presence of Egypt, which is seen as a supporter of the military regime in the PSC, seemingly would complicate its efforts to mediate the Sudanese conflict. Egypt's membership in the 15-member body representing the Northern African region will terminate by the end of March of this year, 2022. Morocco and Tunisia are expected to occupy the two seats of the region for two years. The FFC voiced their support for the efforts of the United Nations Integrated Transition Assistance Mission in Sudan to bring an end to uh, the crisis. And uh, there was also uh, the Sudanese Professional Association, which declined to meet the head of the UN Integrated Transitional Assistance Mission in Sudan to discuss their position on the way out of the current political stalemate. Last month, Volker Pertes uh, launched a two-step initiative aimed uh, to hear the positions of the Sudanese stakeholders and then to facilitate a Sudanese dialogue, uh, Sudanese-led, to reach a compromise on the sticky issues in the transitional process. In a statement released yesterday, the Sudanese Professional Association said they received an invitation for a consultation session with the UNITIMES head, Boko Pertes, to explore their position on the way forward to end the current crisis triggered by the October 25th coup. The group, uh, which led the December 2019 revolution, said they had already released a statement rejecting the dialogue initiative launched by the UNITAMS. This initiative is far from the demands of the revolution and the slogan raised by the revolutionary forces in its struggle against the coup and its allies to reproduce the former Islamist regime further stressed the Sudanese Professional Association. On February the 3rd, the UNITAMS said they are still in the phase of the inclusive consultations with various Sudanese political and civil groups, including, among others, the Islamist Popular Congress Party, the National Charter Alliance, including groups that split from the FFC, and the Juba Peace Agreement signatory groups from eastern Sudan. The SPA blamed the UNITAMS head for not condemning the coup, uh, adding he sought to support and recognize it. Also, the group accused him of seeking to ensure the success of the Al-Bahan Hamdak Agreement. Also, they said that the mission contradicts its mandate and functions because it stood against the aspirations of the Sudanese people for democracy and supported the coup generals, militia leaders, and the warlords. 
This confirms the ineligibility of the mission and has had to support and monitor the democratic transition in the country, they concluded. Besides the SPA, the resistance committee, the spearheaded of an anti-coup protest, also rejected negotiations with the coup leaders and their supporters from the Darfur armed groups. The pro-democracy coalition of political groups, the forces of freedom and change, the FFC, in return, welcomed the UNITAM initiatives, pointing out that it should lead to establishing a civilian transitional authority as they can no longer trust the military. The way out of the current crisis requires an end to the current coup d'etat and the establishment of a new constitutional declaration in which the transitional authority will be entirely civilian, reads a statement uh, that the FFC released uh, on, February, on January the 16th. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In Mali, thousands of anti-French demonstrators have poured into the streets of the capital of Bamako to cheer at the expulsion of the French ambassador. The celebrations yesterday, where people waved Russian flags and burned a cardboard cutout of French President Emmanuel Macron, tensions between the West African country and its former colonial powers have been steadily soaring. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of Malians today who say no to France. So what the European Union and France needs to do is respect the Malian authorities. Mulahi Keita, a member of the country's National Transition Council, told the international press, they need to understand that the authorities in charge today are the only ones who can speak for our country, Keita added. The standoff comes as Western powers say Russian mercenaries working for the controversial Wagner Group have been deployed in Mali, a country at the heart of a long-running conflict in the Sahel region, where thousands of French troops are deployed to fight armed groups. Relations between the two countries have been further deteriorating after the military, which seized power in August of 2020, uh, and then again in May of uh, 2021, retracted the promise to hold elections in February and proposed holding power until 2025 at least. The standoff escalated last week uh, when the French diplomat was given 72 hours to leave the country. The European Union snapped back on Friday, imposing sanctions on five senior members of the country's transitional government, including on interim Prime Minister Joao Maiga. The UN sanctions are ratcheting up the pressure, but simply follow what the Africans have done themselves. Terence McCulley former U.S. ambassador to Mali, told Al Jazeera. He said that, I think dialogue is still an option and still the preferred option with both the economic community of West African states, the 15-member regional organization, and the international community. But Adama Ben-Biar, a sanctioned member of the transitional government, described the restricting measures as an honor, saying that expelling the French ambassador is only the latest step in getting rid of Paris's influence. It is an important step in the fight, but the victory must go on all the way. Diara said in a speech during the rally on Friday, the next step must be the departure of French forces, and then we will start the move towards economic and monetary sovereignty, he added, addressing the deployment of the Russian mercenaries to Mali. Diara said, for the security of my people, I am already to make a pact with Satan to drive out France and its terrorist allies. Mali continues to face challenges in trying to contain an armored band that erupted in 2012. Rebels were forced from power in northern cities from the help 
with the help of a French-led military operation, but they regrouped in the desert and began attacking the Maori army and its allies. Stability in the West African nation has worsened recently with the attacks on civilians and the United Nations peacekeepers. The EU has also been training the Malian armed forces and plans to continue to do so despite the severe instability and political upheaval. And finally, students of the group Sokla, the Kuchu Kiro, watched the opening ceremony of the Beijing 2020 Olympic Winter Games uh, in the capital of Rwanda in Kigali. Uh, that took place on yesterday. Residents of the Aditewa cell, the Rutungu sector, the Sabo district in the Kigali city suburbs were treated to a thrilling opening ceremony of the 2022 Winter Olympics uh, in the Chinese capital, Beijing, on Friday. The access to satellite TV for 10,000 African villages project in their communities. We were very happy to watch the opening ceremony. You can see the villages are happy and entertained. This is the first time we watched these kinds of games. Claudine Aban Ibana, executive secretary of the Inda Temwa Cell, told Genoa News Agency in an interview. She said that the satellite TV enabled them to watch the games because without it, they couldn't have afforded to watch Winter Olympics because many of the people in the community don't have televisions. We are grateful for the satellite equipment that allowed us to watch the games. We shall use the equipment to watch news and follow the current events of public importance, said Aban Ibana. Watching the Winter Olympic Games is a good opportunity for our children to learn these kinds of games that features in the Winter Olympics. Emmanuel Biko Rimana, one of the Inda Temwa residents, told Shinawa, adding that, quote, they will motivate and inspire our children to grow up loving sports and get to know a wide range of sports. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service that is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you have to do is uh, go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. You'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, February 5th, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-Africans, your worldwide radio broadcast. That was the voice of Brenda Holloway with her song entitled, How Many Times Did You Mean It? And uh, this month, uh, February, annually represents African American History Month, uh, which was founded uh, as Negro History Week in 1926 by the esteemed and seminal scholar Dr. Carter G. Woodson, an historian, a Harvard graduate, uh, who in fact, uh, was a pioneering figure uh, in uh, the acquisition and dissemination and popularization of African-American history in the United States and indeed internationally. Uh, We're going to listen to a discussion on the significance of uh, Carter Whitson and the significance of uh, teaching and education in the African-American struggle. Let's listen in. Black lights and boots burn when I record for watch And every black like Troy Davis who never had a fair shot All black everything, everything black Culture over everything, y'all, we taking it back Greetings and welcome to Season 12 of Left to Black. My name is Mark Anthony Neal, longtime host, and we are joined today by Professor Jarvis R. Givens, Assistant Professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a faculty affiliate in the Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard. And he is the author of Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching, which was published in 2021 by Harvard University Press. Of Fugitive Pedagogy, Henry Drew writes, it is a brilliant, inspiring, and an energizing book that reclaims narratives of critique and hope that fuel the deep grammar of pedagogical struggle that unfolded in both the experiences and narratives of Black educators in the beginning of the 20th century and beyond. Welcome to Left of Black, Professor Givens. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, this is a really amazing book. Um, I know for me, uh, from my own personal reading of it, it really does recover Carter G. Woodson as a radical figure. You know, there are ways in which, you know, the image of Carter G. Woodson has been flattened over the years, and and we just simply think about him in the context of being the father of Black History Month and Negro History Week, and everybody talks about, you know, the miseducation of the Negro, but but you really unfold a a really compelling figure um, and give us, you know, much deeper context for the scholar that he became and, and the radical figure that he became. But you start the book not with Carter G. Woodson, but this figure of Tessie McGee. Um, you know, who you describe in the beginning of the book and throughout as, as really a great example of what you call fugitive teaching. Talk a little bit about who Tessie McGee was. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, Tessie McGee was a teacher at the Webster Parish Training School. Uh, and the opening scenario of the book that you're referring to is taking place in the early 1930s, where Tessie McGee is secretly reading to her uh, high school class of students at the Webster Parish Training School from Carter G. Woodson's textbook that she keeps concealed in her lap underneath the desk. Um, And then the student recalls someone coming into the classroom and he says, she stopped reading from the book and began reading from the the required outline that she was supposed to teach from based on the local kind of school board. Uh, And then the student says, when the door closes and the person leaves, her eyes went back to the book in her lap. for, for me, that was, you know, when I came across that story, it really uh, opened my eyes to the work, the extraordinary work that ordinary Black teachers were doing in Black schools um, across this country, um, and that 
to understand the significance of Carter G. Woodson, we also had to understand this world of black teachers that he was a part of, right? That he was a student, because he himself had once been a student in you know, rural black classrooms in Virginia being taught by his formerly enslaved uncles. And, if, and that story about Tessa McGee just forced me to imagine um, a new way of talking about the way black teachers navigated power in the context of Jim Crow schools. And Tessa McGee just became the perfect embodiment of that. Um, and I wanted to open the book with her uh, telling that story because Woodson is also present in the context of his textbook that she's using. Um, but in order to really appreciate that story, we ha have to take into account the social history that gave it like meaning, right? Um, and so using Tessie McGee as this kind of window to kind of open the story was, became very important for me because it wasn't just about Woodson. It was about this pedagogical tradition he uh, was the product of and that he helped to expand through his work. You know, one of the things I love about the story of, of McGee is that it, it even isn't just what she's doing pedagogically in that moment, right? But, but she's offering the students in the class uh, a blueprint, a narrative, right, for the ways in which they have to negotiate, you know, their own sense of black study and the white gaze, right? I mean, she's literally, you know, performing that labor for them, right, in, in ways that you could imagine that those of them that were really attuned to it, right, could take it and then apply it to their own work, you know, going forward. Absolutely. And I, I so appreciate you for lifting up that point, because for me, it was about, it's not just about the text that she's reading. It's not just the kind of these alternative scripts of knowledge that Woodson is offering through his textbook, The Negro and Our History, but it's also this embodied practice that we see in Tessie McGee that actually is important for understanding how Black people even began to develop this kind of counter-intellectual tradition, right? This, this intellectual tradition where they're reclaiming the stories of Black resistance um, and the stories of fugitive slaves in the period of enslavement or the, the history of black people secretly learning to read and write that's literally documented in the book that she's secretly reading to her students from, right? And so that embodiment um, is, is also communicating important lessons to the students, right? So it's not just about the written word, but it's also about the kind of the embodied knowledge that we see in how Tessie McGee is navigating the constraints of Jim Crow schools and students are taking lessons from this, which is why I tried to, I, I emphasize the point that we only get access to this story because her student remembered this, right? Yeah. That left some account for, of it in the record for, for, for someone like myself to go back and to study um, and to use that as a way of kind of uh, challenging so much of the kind of flat, so many of the flat narratives that we tend to have about black teachers and black education prior to uh, desegregation. You know, there's a way in, in this contemporary moment when we think about the relationship to black academics, to black teachers, right? And, and there's so many well-funded workshops and webinars now where, you know, black faculty, you know, engage secondary and high school teachers, you know, elementary school teachers on how to teach black history. Um, to the extent that there's a real strong dichotomy between what we think of as working teachers, black teachers every day, and, and black, you know, scholars and intellectuals and what have you, you know, Carter G. Woodson didn't have the luxury, right, to, to really build upon that kind of dichotomy, right? He saw his lot, obviously, because he was coming up as a school teacher himself, but he saw his own intellectual development as intricately connected 
to the world of, of black teachers. Um, and part of that is embodied in the way that he ran what we now call Asala, uh, but the Association for the Study of Negro Life and, and, and History, where he always imagined that institution as not just being about a, a place for black scholars to come together, but really, um, you know, a, a real vertical exchange of ideas, right, among teachers, among students, and obviously faculty and other folks who were teaching at HBCUs at the time. Absolutely. You know, and that's really one of the things that was so inspiring to me when I was uh, trying to recover these these different aspects of Carter G. Woodson's story. And I just felt like I, I had to lift up the fact that these were, that there was not this um, clear divide between the intellectual work and demands placed on the black scholar in higher education and the intellectual work and demands of black school teachers. Um, and this is just, it's, uh, it's, you know, illuminated in Carter G. Woodson's personal narrative when we think about the years leading up to him founding Asala, he's a, he's a teacher at, uh, he's a teacher at the M Street School in Washington, D.C., where his colleagues are people like Anna Julia Cooper, right, mm -hmm. um, and Jesse Fawcett. Uh, and so many other faculty members that are there that have advanced degrees, um, who are, who have traveled around the world and who are, and other teachers in Washington, DC, like Lila Amos Pendleton, who wrote a textbook before he wrote a textbook, right? And similar, like, you know, um, and a, as well as, uh, John Cromwell, who was also a principal in the DC public schools. And so one of the things that I wanted to show was that we have to make sure that in appreciating this institution that Woodson created was that it can't, it, did, it didn't occur in a vacuum. Woodson was a part of this, comp, this, 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 you know, intellectual world of black teachers where they're engaging in deep intellectual struggle. Literally the months leading up to him founding Asala or the ASNLH in Chicago, one of the things I tried to document are these debates that are happening amongst the teachers at the school that he attends and also in DC public schools more broadly but also in places like, you know, uh, other organizations that he's a part of, like the American Negro Academy with Arturo Schomburg speaking to a group of teachers literally just a year and a half before he founds Asala, saying that we need chairs of Negro history in our schools. We need people to come forward and to write new textbooks um, to speak to the experiences of Black scholars and Black students. Um, and then in Washington, D.C., before Woodson even travels to Chicago, where he founds a the ASNLH in that September, you have the teachers saying that they're going to, they're planning to host professional development seminars that fall, where they're bringing W.B. Du Bois is, is doing kind of professional development workshops on outlines and sketches in Negro history for high school history teachers, and where Woodson himself is participating in this work, right? And so we have to understand the, the founding of this organization that we tend to think of as just for university trained historians as actually something that's about a much larger educational project because Woodson himself, you know, even as he had already had a PhD in history, was not able to teach um, at institutions of higher education uh, during this time period. He himself is a teacher in, uh, mm -hmm. in a high school, right? And so we see this collapsing of these um, rigid boundaries between higher education and the K through 12 setting because these are educators that understand their work as engaging in a much larger uh, shared project about challenging Blackness in society. Um, and these teachers are saying that they have to also engage in intellectual struggle in order to meet the needs of their students because the curriculum, the policies and protocols of dominant 
of the dominant American school are insufficient for meeting the demands of their work as black right. teachers for black students. Years from now, um, when folks look back on your work and in, in this book in particular, you know, the thing that's going to resonate for folks is this language of fugitive pedagogy. Can you unpack a little bit for our audience um, this idea of fugitive pedagogy? Yes. Uh, Thanks for that question. Um, and I should say that I kind of, I didn't start out with that kind of idea. I really, that, that concept of fugitive pedagogy came from me trying to figure out how to name what I saw taking place in these encounters like the one I shared about Tessie McGee. Yeah, I know, because um, you, you say at some point in the book, it, it wasn't just resistance, right? There, were, there was something else that was going on than just simply describing it as a resistance, you know, to, to American education and American schooling. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and part of uh, resistance is, you know, it's, it's accurate, but it's insufficient to fully yeah. capture the dynamics and the power dynamics that are at play in these, these stories that I, I was trying to write about with black people. And so one of the things that became instructive for me, I should also say, I was, I was very, very fascinated um, with the history of subversive black educational politics in the time of slavery. Um, and, you know, the fact that anti-literacy laws, you know, predate the founding of the United States, right? Yeah. The first anti-literacy yeah. law is established in 1740 that makes, uh, you know, black literacy, that criminalizes black literacy black in the context of yeah. South Carolina in response to the Stono Slave Rebellion of 1739. Yeah. So you have this kind of this deep structural antagonism surrounding black education that even precedes the founding of the United States. But then we see these anti-literacy laws proliferating um, in various states across the South. And even in the absence of anti-literacy laws, there's this kind of ambient anti-literacy ideology and sentiment cuts across regional boundaries in the, in the North and the South um, leading up to the Civil War. Um, and, and so in this context, we see Black people developing an educational project that refuses these kind of the criminalization of Black literacy and Black education. And that is a politics of education that is developed by enslaved people and their fugitive literacy practices. You know, we, Frederick Douglass is one of the iconic examples of this, right? When Master Hugh Ault says to his wife, if you teach this slave how to read and write, um, it'll make him... Uh, uh, it'll make him uh, discontent. It'll unfit him for his duty. And he says, this being accomplished, he'll be running away with himself, right? It's literally the quote that Douglas recalls from Master Hugh Ault when he uh, links Douglas's efforts to become a literate uh, subject with Douglas's, uh, the potential for him to disrupt the political economy of slavery and to run away physically in his body, but also the kind of intellectual work and the expression of his Douglas's own interiority, you know, chipped away at the kind of yeah. the kind of power dynamics of slavery as well. And so what I'm trying to name in the book is saying that there's a relationship between that politics of education developed by enslaved people, politics expressed by black folks in the post emancipation era, when their education is, is, is technically legal, right? It's no longer illegal, but we know that it's continued to be met with violent white resistance. Um, even as the formal, the form, the freed men and women are the people who lead the legislative campaigns to establish the first universal education system in the southern states, right? Um, but their 
education continues to be under violent assault. You know, between 1866 and 1876, more than 600 black schools are burned down in the South. So given that violent context of surveillance, we know that critical parts of black education continue to happen through subversive and fugitive means, right? Because there continue to be these efforts to restrain and to restrict um, what the form that black education would take and how it would be used to challenge the kind of the, the, the social hierarchy of the post um, of the post civil of the post bellum com, um, context. Um, and so fugitive pedagogy is it indexes that history of the fugitive literacy of enslaved people. It indexes that close linking of black literacy with, uh, you know, with fugitive slaves. I, I think of Ishmael Reed's uh, book, Flight to Canada, when mm-hmm, he says, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a fictional narrative, but it's really building on this history mm-hmm. when he says the first to learn to read on the plantation was often the first to run away, right? Uh, there, there's, this is, you know, referring to Master Hewald saying the thing, that there's a, a relationship between these things. You can even, we can read some of the fugitive slave ads that will oftentimes list the problem, the fact that these fugitive slaves, um, it's suspected that they might be literate, right? And they might have a forged past alongside physical descriptions of scars on their faces and how tall they were right. um, or missing kind of limbs, so on and so forth. Um, and so that history of black fugitive life and black educational life that develops in the time of slavery is something that continues to persist when we see teachers secretly learning to read and write um, uh, teachers secretly exposing students to this counter intellectual tradition and teaching about fugitive slaves, right? Carter G. Woodson attended a high school where his, you know, his cousin was the principal and it was named after Frederick Douglass, right? So we right. see black people commemorating the history of black fugitive life, right? Um, you know, not only that, but we see the spirit of Black fugitive life embodied in the work that teachers are doing. That same principal at, Doug, at, at Carter G. Woodson's high school, the Frederick Douglass High School, was his first cousin who was fired from that school because of his political advocacy in that local community in Huntington, West Virginia, by, by operating an independent Black newspaper where he's organizing the local Black community around electoral politics, right? That gets, that lo- he loses his job because of that, right? So I'm saying that the intellectual work um, of enslaved people who were pursuing literacy through fugitive means is connected to this counter-educational tradition that's reflected in both the, in, the scripts of knowledge that they're writing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also mm-hmm. name the fact that the first, the very first Black author textbooks were written by fugitive slaves, yeah. right? That are related to also the, the slave narratives, which is the foundation of the kind of Black educational and intellectual tradition um, in, you know, in, in this country, right, is, a, is literature that's produced by fugitive slaves, right? This literary tradition, this educational tradition is not unrelated from Carter G. Woodson's writing of textbooks that are reclaiming these people as heroes, right? As a part of an intellectual tradition that students can look to as for, for inspiration and to help them develop a, an incisive social analysis about their condition Black learners um, in an anti-Black world. Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, you know, when you talk about, you know, fugitive slaves as these kind of educational folk heroes, uh, and I remember, you know, being excited about reading that part of the book, and you start with Frederick Douglass, right? And I had to pause because there's a way in which his image has been so sanitized 
over the years that, that we forget that he was a fugitive slave. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And, 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 and in many, because, you know, we talk about Nat Turner and folks like that, but, but that's also the world that produced Frederick Douglass. Um, and, and how many hundreds, right? You know, probably thousands of Frederick Douglass schools are literally right. across the United States right now. <laughs> right. It's, it's so true. But, and, it's, and it's to think about that's a practice that the, you know, formerly enslaved people and black folks during Jim Crow were naming schools after Frederick Douglass. There's also, you know, I think about also after Toussaint Louverture, right? right. One right. of the things I had to emphasize, you know, is, you know, a number of schools that were actually named after uh, Toussaint, right? In terms of thinking about how the Haitian Revolution was also a part of this, these narratives of Black fugitive life that Black teachers were handing over and sharing and saying, this is important yeah. for you to understand um, your condition and this continuum of consciousness that we, you, you should understand yourself as being uh, situated within, right? And your work is an extension of this tradition, is essentially what they're doing. It's not just about learning the facts of Negro history. The first Black person to do this, um, the kind of first independent Black nation. It, it's about that these teachers, they were offering this and trying to expand the inventory of knowledge of students, but there was also a conceptual kind of claim that they're making in putting this information before students and trying to offer it as resources for them to interpret their reality in a, in a Jim Crow world. Um, I want to return a moment to Woodson. Um, you know, he found the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, you know, more than 15 years before the pu publication of the Miseducation. Um, he gets his, you know, PhD at least a decade before the miseducation of the Negro. Um, I think we're apt to forget that he had such an impactful career in life before the publication of that book, right, which is published, you know, 15 or so years before his death. But I want to go back to an earlier example of, of Woodson's work when he's working in the coal mines. Um, and, and, you know, this story just, you know, had me on fire. The idea he's working in the coal mines and at the behest of the black men who are working in the coal mines, he sets up a study group, mm -hmm. right, where he's reading to them black texts amongst men who can't read, but still engage in the discourse of, of critical discourse of, of intellectual mm -hmm. attainment in the context. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating and, and it's a model I think that we read, need to revisit in terms of creating up, creating sectors of black study in working class communities, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in, in ways in which, in, in which, you know, Woodson didn't just see himself as an expert in this context, but part of a community of interlocutors, right? right. Even though he was the one who had literacy in a traditional sense, and these men didn't. Absolutely. I, I think for me that... <laughs> I just, I, that was such an important um, part of Woodson's biography, you know, and so, so the book is not trying to offer an exhaustive biography of Woodson's life, but I found it to be important to piece apart, to, to pick apart these important elements of his own personal narrative and his journey from being a student, um, the, the, the student of, and child of former slaves, right? He's both the student yeah. and the child of former slaves. Yeah. Um, but then he also essentially becomes a teacher in many ways of, of formerly enslaved people as well, because these Civil War veterans were also formerly enslaved um, Black who were also illiterate. And it's in that space that he becomes exposed to the knowledge 
and the, mm-hmm. the, the knowledge that these people carry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, gave him the kind of courage to refuse the idea presented by his Harvard University professors who said, black people have no history or at least none worthy of respect, right? Um, it's because he heard the stories from his mother of being in a coffle of slaves sold in front of the statue of George Washington in Richmond, Virginia, and how the enslaved people came to associate that symbol of George Washington with them being sold down south, yep. right? Um, and so these, these ideas, these kind of counter, these alternative claims on knowledge and on the American project that he inherits from his parents, right? Because his father also relies on him. His father is illiterate and relies on him to read newspapers to him as well. So this practice of communal literacy, right, is a model of education that was a core part of Black subversive practices around education during the period of enslavement, such that even those people who were not able to decipher the written word could rely on people who were literate to um, to, to read in their hearing excerpts from newspapers or pieces of, of abolitionist literature, right? Um, for them to then interact with literate culture as well. This is something that carries over to the post-emancipation period. And so these men who Woodson is working with in the coal mines invite him to come into their parlor in the evening and, ha- and they, 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 they give him things essentially to pay him to read to them from black newspapers, from mainstream papers, from some of the kind of early books that are being written by, um, by black scholars in the late 19th century. And this is before he even attends high school, right? He hasn't attended high school at this point. Woodson doesn't, is not able to attend high school until he, he moves away to Huntington, Virginia to attend a school where his family um, is a part of this school community um, at the age of 20, right? So all the stuff is what he experiences before he starts high school at the age of 20 years old. Um, and that is central to the vision of education that he has as understanding it as not only about individual striving um, and individual efforts to kind of climb up a social ladder, but it's a shared project because that's the way that it's modeled in the kind of, in, in the, at the foundation of his own experience going from student to teacher. Um, and he carries that with him in terms of how he conceptualizes um, uh, the ASNLH, uh, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Tessie McGee, you know, personifies this kind of negotiation between insurgent black study and the white gaze. Um, and, and you mentioned throughout the book that, you know, that black fugitive pedagogues, you know, had the pedagogues had to be aware of a certain kind of performance towards the white gaze. Right. You know, which which Woodson himself knew, even as he's kind of aiming these polemics at black teachers, right, mm-hmm. including himself, obviously, in that critique. Right, you know, he understood the negotiation. That everything didn't seem exactly what it seemed. And there's a way in which when we think about this moment, right, and, and there's no way really to read Carter G. Woodson as anything but a public scholar, a public intellectual, I think, in this moment. Um, talk a little bit about this negotiation between fugitive pedagogy and what we think of now as public scholarship, right? You know, are they mutually exclusive or, or are there other negotiations that take place in order to do that kind of work, uh, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it, in plain sight. Right. Um, so I definitely don't think that they're unrelated because Woodson is doing this. He makes a conscious decision to move outside of formal educational structures for the purposes of influencing the work um, that teachers are doing in, in classrooms 
um, and giving to provide them with resources that they're not able to get gain access to through traditional teacher training pathways, and in some instances, not even at some of the, at the HEUs, right? Because Woodson himself is only able to teach. He leaves Howard <laughs> University one year. after teaching there for one year because of the conflict with, you know, the white uh, the white president of the university, but also the manipulative practices of white philanthropists. And so he's trying to create um, a kind of uh, uh, an alternative kind of uh, space for an a counter public, really, for black teachers to have space to engage in the kind of intellectual struggle and knowledge production that's necessary to see the kind of transformation um, that that he's that they're collectively striving for in the context of schools. Um, and so his his identity as a public intellectual is is it is a part of that fugitive pedagogy, him trying to escape the control mechanisms of white philanthropy and white leadership of black institutions and black education, which he talks about explicitly in the miseducation of the Negro in 1933, after he had been completely alienated from white uh, philanthropists that he had been trying to toe the line in terms of trying to appease them in ways that he could, but also still maintain intellectual autonomy with building the organization he's trying to create. And so by 1930, his public critiques of white philanthropists and his refusal to allow them to dictate the terms of the scholarship that he's writing creates a kind of a complete break um, between him and these educational, white education reformers and kind of, um, you know, uh, racial liberals during the, t white racial liberals during that time period that he saw as essentially paternalistic and um, and, and controlling and manipulative of the development of black education. Um, and so I see his, his model of public scholarship um, as an extension of that tradition of fugitive pedagogy. Um, but he's still trying to partner with black teachers to influence the lives of students that, they're, that, are, gonna, that are continuously being cycled into schools. But he's saying some of the work that needs to be done and the resources that we need have to come from outside of this schooling apparatus of the state. Right, um, and that's what we see him modeling. Um, and I think that's a very important part of this history of fugitive pedagogy that's related to, but distinct from the kind of individual act of subversively uh, navigating power in the context of schools by secretly offering students this information, right? Woodson is, it's, it's a part of this collective struggle, um, you know, and, and those, things are, those things are related. Um, I do think that there are ways in which, um, some of the elements of this tradition of fugitive pedagogy can be modeled in the contemporary moment. Um, but to be clear, uh, well, I was gonna say, we don't live under the same kind of forms right. of kind of censorship and violence uh, that we <laughs> see with these kind of educators in the early 20th yeah. century. But, you know, I, I have to be like honest, I would not, I could not have anticipated what we're seeing currently when right. it comes to the legislative campaigns. Right. Exactly. I was, you know, which is quite resonant with this much longer yeah. history. And one right. of the things that, I've right. been, that I have to tell my students is that what we see right now with these legislative campaigns to restrict how we teach about race and racial inequality in the con and racial uh, violence and inequality in the context of schools is much more consistent with the longer span of like of, of uh, uh, the policing of the parameters of knowledge and our approaches to teaching knowledge in this country than what we might've seen within the last couple of decades that people have be became somewhat comfortable with as the DEI kind of consulting industry expanded 
and kind of efforts around anti-racist teaching and stuff became uh, taken up in popular discourse, I'm like, you know, what we see, this backlash is actually much more consistent with the longer history of education in this country. Um, and we have to be mindful of that. We have to have a long memory of these things. I love the idea, you know, two things again out of, of, out of Woodson's career. One, his thought of the association with the study, uh, associated with the study of Negro life and, and history as a free reference bureau. Um, really like an analog version of black Twitter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 90 years before, before black Twitter. Um, and also this idea of the abroad mentor, you know, which you reclaim from this idea of abroad marriages, you know, folks who were married across plantations. And, and I always remember early in my career talking with Robin D.G. Kelly, and, and he mentioned as an undergraduate student, he just sent a cold letter to Nell Painter because he didn't have mentors, right? And he, you know, knew she existed, knew she was a PhD in history, just simply sent her a letter and how she mentored him. You know, then in the absence of the internet, (laughs) the absence of social media, but through just a letter writing campaign, right? And it's something that he then replicated in his own career. But again, you take this back to the role that that Carter G. Woodson played, right, as mentoring, particularly, you know, black uh, secondary and and K through 12 teachers, right, in a way that was extraordinary given the kind of limits of communication at the time. Absolutely. and this is one of the things that becomes, the reason that I try offer that language of abroad mentorship is because I wanted to uh, couch this narrative of Woodson's um, effort to create these non, create non-traditional pathways of kind of collaboration between black scholars and black teachers um, that move beyond to traditional teacher training pathways as part of a longer legacy of black people um, striving to create uh, social relations that best suit the needs of their lives, right? Um, and when we see these kind of um, non-traditional forms of kind of um, kinship and relationship mm-hmm. that folks have always had to develop in order to, um, you know, to eke out an existence and to create uh, experiences of kind of human dignity and opportunities for right relationship and meaningful relationship and meaningful study, um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to place that tradition in the intellectual tradition, this abroad mentorship within that longer set of, that, that broader conversation. Um, and that was important because we see what, you know, what's in himself when he's, a, when he's a master's student at the University of Chicago, he wants to write his master's thesis on the Negro church. There's no one at Chicago to assist him with doing this. What does he do? He turns and he writes a letter to W.B. Du Bois who doesn't know in who he is, right? So in 1908, before, He's Dr. Woodson, right? He's just, you know, a student that's, um, you know, uh, try, striving to get his master's at University of Chicago. He writes this letter to Du Bois. Um, but we see how, you know, Black scholars are having to piece together the kind of mentorship and intellectual training that they need in order to cre- create this new body of knowledge that they understand to be important. The Association for the study of Negro life and history serves a similar function. We see Woodson um, institutionalizing that practice by creating this, this counter, this intellectual public where, you know, black scholars who are studying history, but not only just history, you have folklores and, you know, black folks who are studying other kind of sociological questions as well. And anthropology also attending the ASNLH meetings early on 
um, because this is a space, you know, this is really the first academic organization devoted to the study of, of race um, in, in this country, right? Um, when we think about the mission of that organization yeah. and how it's setting out and then creates a journal, the Journal of Negro History, to right. publish this information and a space for them to publish this academic knowledge and really asserts and says that the study of Black life and history is a legitimate field of study, right? And they're creating the parameters and the protocols for doing that. And then you have people like Charles H. Wesley, Rayford Logan, who come behind and, you know, even someone like Zora Neale Hurston, right? who is working for the ASNLH. We think about that book, Barracoon, that she writes mm -hmm. when she interviews, um, you know, one of the last uh, uh, member, uh, enslaved people who came through the Middle Passage in the US, right? She's working there on assignment from the ASNLH, right? And receiving funding to do that, uh, you know, and we have to understand this abroad mentorship that Woodson is doing to kind of open up space uh, for what would later become, you know, black studies, obviously. Um, but, you know, for me, that was just very important. Even people who felt like Woodson's Woodson was difficult to get along with, they could not, they could not write him off because they acknowledged and they respected the mission and his commitment to the mission of this kind of early black studies movement that's, that he's creating space for and that they're all participating in and trying to, um, to expand. And that language of a broad mentorship for me was important to name that uh, that phenomenon in the black intellectual tradition. One of the things I'm curious about in reading this book, um, I, I, I wonder if you would share what it was about your own training that made you open and susceptible to the narrative that you write in Fugitive Pedagogy. Yeah, thank you, thank you for that question. Um, and I'm trying to figure out uh, what what point to kind of emphasize. I I, sh I should say that you know i didn't go to graduate school to study education at all or study the history of black education i was i went to the phd program in african-american studies at uc berkeley for a very different set of questions um that i was asking uh but i wrote a book by vanessa siddle walker uh called their highest potential which is a work of uh, educational history and it's about a high achieving black school in jim crow north carolina called the coswell county training school I read that in my, the second semester of my graduate program, and I was so shocked uh, to encounter such deep resonances between the educational culture she was writing about and the education I experienced in Compton, California in the uh, 1990s up uh, until the early 2000s, because I attended this small black parochial school. Um, it, it was formerly an all-white school when, when the city of Compton was all-white after the Watts uprising, you have white flight, black folks move into the city and they appropriate this school. And it wasn't until I read that book that I realized that, oh, all of the teachers that I had were Southern migrants who were educated in Jim Crow schools, um, a number of them having also been educated at HBCUs. And I think just a short story, the, the, the principal of this school who started teaching there in the 1970s was still the principal when I got there in the 1990s, um, who was educated in the growth schools of Lake Providence, Louisiana. She attends Southern University, begins teaching at the Southern Laboratory School at Southern University, and in many ways just works to recreate many of the educational practices that she understood to be good and meaningful in her own educational development and to, and to use that as a kind of a guide and resources for building this school that she developed um, and that she was the leader of in Compton that I attended. Um, and we did such that reciting poems by black poets every morning before starting class and singing the black national anthem 
right, at every program and at every morning devotion was a norm for me from the time I was in preschool up until the time I graduated from the eighth grade. Um, and then I went to a high school that was also predominantly black in Watts. The over 75% black students, overwhelming majority of the teachers were black. Many of them were also um, Southern migrants. One in particular, who was my, the chair of the English department, was educated at the Frederick Douglass School in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, and began her education in the Jim Crow era before moving to California and attending Compton High School. And, and she began teaching during the Watts uprising, right? And so many of the teachers that I encountered that gave me a meaningful education were operating in a tradition that was much longer than, you know, the, my experience or their experience. And so that became kind of the early part of my own educational experience that I drew on as a resource when trying to recuperate and make these connections. Um, in addition to kind of going to UC Berkeley and you know, realizing that black studies is something that I wanted to do after having Eula Taylor as a, as a, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, as the professor of my sophomore year that made me realize that this is actually what I wanted to do and really yeah. was really operating also in this tradition as well. And my undergraduate mentor and subsequently my dissertation advisor, right? So that language of a broad mentorship and this kind of ongoing tradition and the relationship between black teachers and black study in the university is something that I knew intimately um, and that I saw reflected as part of the best of the black intellectual tradition and embodied in the story of teachers. And I wanted to bring all of that into the story that I told and wrapping that around the life of Woodson to kind of open up new ways of understanding this history and that, um, and that heritage. We've been joined today by Professor Jarvis R. Givens, who's assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a faculty affiliate in the Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. His wonderful new contribution to the field of Black study is Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching, published by Harvard University Press 2021, of which uh, our friend Henry Giroux describes as a brilliant, inspiring, and energizing book that reclaims narratives of critique and hope that feel the deep grammar of pedagogical struggle that unfolded in both the experiences and narratives of Black educators in the beginning of the 20th century and beyond. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Givens. Thank you so much for having me. Black lights and boots burn when I record for watch And every black like Troy Davis who never had a fair shot Call black everything, everything black Culture over everything, y'all, we taking it back Black Welcome back, and uh, that was a uh, discussion on the history and significance of the contributions of Dr. Carter G. Woodson as it relates to African-American history and as I said earlier, uh, we are commemorating African-American history, as we always do, um, throughout the year. But uh, February being African-American History Month, we will bring you a series of programs uh, related uh, to that theme and beyond. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Carnivals and cotton candy 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of the band Love, uh, led by Arthur Lee, uh, with the tune entitled Orange Skies uh, from their second album uh, entitled Dacopa, uh, released in early 1967. And uh, as we mentioned before, the African Union uh, 35th uh, Ordinary Summit is taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We're going to bring you a report uh, on developments surrounding uh, the African Union Summit. China Global Television Network. Heads of state and government in Africa are convening at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia this week for the 35th ordinary session of the African Union Summit. The meeting will be key to unlocking the way forward for Africa amid wide-ranging challenges from a resurgence of military takeovers, COVID-19, economic development and climate change. And as the African Union prepares to mark its 20th anniversary later this year, pressure is also mounting on the African Union to do better. Reforms at the organization are yet to be fully effected and a more assertive role in the continent's peace, security and governance is yet to be seen. 2022's presidency of the African Union switches from the Democratic Republic of Congo to Senegal. But what is the wider outlook for the African Union in 2022? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Now, peace and security in Africa has remained among the most prominent challenges for the African Union. In strong-worded statements from the continental body, the African Union, together with the international community, have condemned recent unconstitutional takeovers of power that have threatened stability in various parts of the continent. But will these statements be enough to change situations on the ground? Daniel Moy brings us the perspective from Addis Ababa on these developments. The last year has seen the unconstitutional transfer of power in West Africa, with Guinea, Mali, and Burkina Faso seeing new leaders rise from their respective militaries. The African Union continental body has come out to condemn the latest attempted coup in Guinea-Bissau. The resurgence, uh, the recrudescence uh, of unconstitutional change of government which has dangerously been increasing over the past month, is a sign of uh, great uh, deficiency and uh, deviation, as you have followed the coup uh, in uh, Guinea-Bissau. We have the resurgence of unconstitutional changes of government that is undermining the foundation of our states and is undermining all our efforts for development. Besides condemnation, Recent coups in Africa have also triggered suspensions and even sanctions from regional and continental bodies as they continue to seek peaceful solutions to the political crisis. We don't want uh, to see you know, countries experience uh, any form of instability uh, and we hope that you know, uh, the regional economic community, ECOWAS, 
uh, will deal with that uh, situation and African uh, Union will of course deliberate on this matter as well. The African Union has reacted with disappointing statements, putting pressure on the coup leaders to respect the constitutional order. For now, what seems problematic for the African Union is the refusal by coup leaders to relinquish power and allow for democratic change. Daniel Arab Moy, CGTN, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Well, let's now bring on board our panel of experts to give further insight of the African Union at 20 and in 2022. We are now joined by Ambassador Erastus Mwencha, a former Deputy Chairperson of the African Union Commission. He's joining us from Nairobi. Tolu Akerele is a consultant in counterterrorism. She's bringing in the perspective of ECOWAS operations and politics of the former French colonies in West Africa. She's joining us from London. Thank you both for being part of the discussion. Uh, Tolu, if I may start off with you, because the African Union will be marking its 20th anniversary in 2022, even though the organization itself has been in existence for about 60 years. First, looking back at the African Union over the last 20 years, uh, what stands out for you? Um, 20 years is quite a broad, broad um, time frame, of course, but I think what's key about the African Union is how um, it allows regional blocs to deal with regional issues, and it, it provides more of a continental moral authority with involvement only when it's coming to spillover wars or heavy conflict or anything that will affect the continent at large. So of course, we saw um, the AU's involvement around uh, the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of aid and support came from the AU. Um, we're seeing in Ethiopia in the current situation now, the AU is involved due to its capacity and ability to draw from the other regional blocs to tackle the issue. Um, so I think really those are some key takeaways how the AU is an overarching kind of moral umbrella for the continent, but also gives a lot of autonomy and independence to regional areas um, and allows those blocs such as ECOWAS to kind of put in things like sanctions um, or handle more global issues on a regional front. Tolu, you talk about the AU having an overarching moral obligation. Are we really seeing that moral obligation coming to play with the African Union? If you look uh, over the last uh, few years, all the sudden coups that are coming up on the continent. Thank you for that point. Very, very good point. So yes, of course, in the last six months alone, we've seen a resurgence of coups in West Africa, of course, Burkina Faso being the latest. Um, but as I did mention, economic, personal, and regional trade sanctions are much better dealt with by hands-on institutions like ECOWAS um, because they can apply better pressure through the countries and the localities. So the coup leaders in Mali, for example, were penalized with ECOWAS sanctions, including travel restrictions, freezing of accounts, and border closures that restricted regional trade. But the AU has actually stepped up in the right. Ethiopian conflict and has appointed um, Nigeria to lead the efforts. For example, so we've seen former President Obasanjo as the overall civilian and political mediator. And this is because the AU draws from different blocs to take care of continental issues. Um, of course, this is a very serious kind of conflict which could spill over and in this case, the ECOWAS region was chosen as we, I say we because I'm Nigerian, are removed from the problem of Ethiopia's regional conflict. All right, let of me... Course, 
Let me draw Sorry, in uh, Ambassador Mwencha here. Ambassador, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, the, the challenges and the most pressing issues that the African Union has faced over the last 20 years. And generally, what is your take on where it is today? Uh, thank you so much. Um, yes, I, no, maybe in putting the context of the African Union, and I want to agree with my fellow panelists for what she has said, um, you know, African Union at its inception in 1863 recognized that at that time the most pressing issue was to decolonize and also eliminate apartheid, but left economic issue to regional economic blocks, which she has ably referred to. And in fact, if you look at what has been done by various regional economic blocks, uh, it's quite uh, some. Uh, remarkable achievements in terms of facilitating trade, in terms of uh, mobility within the region, and also generally moving towards customs union and, and uh, free trade areas. But when it comes to continental level, as has rightly mentioned again, the continent has left itself to face outwards, to, to, to dialogue with the rest of the world. And you can see the kind of dialogues now taking place, Africa, China, Africa, Europe, and all that. It's true that in the last few years, there has been uh, a pushback on democratization. There has been quite a lot of uh, democratic, you know, what I call, call deficits. In fact, the, the global index on, on, on democracy has declined. But this is because the, the West has also kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, not because they were seen as so-called guarantors of democracy. Right. They have also worked back on, that, on it. And so, yes, these schools are coming because a number of countries started to revise their constitutions and go back, not necessarily to one party state, but more or less uh, to, 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 to keep the parties in place, but also because of other things. If you look at the schools that are taking place in West Africa, it is because the population is, is, is really exhausted from the wars that are taking place there, particularly if you look at the... So let's hear a bit more about there these is, wars, because uh, Tolu, you, you, you know, you've been, you've been watching this uh, from an ECOWAS standpoint, and as Ambassador Mwencha uh, puts it, there is a pushback on democratization, but of course we're going to be asking here, how do you rate the African Union's reaction to the developments uh, happening in Mali, in Chad, in Guinea, in Sudan, and now Burkina Faso? Um, excellent question, and I again would like to thank the Ambassador for his amazing insights in terms of the African Union's goals economically um, and what they've been building over the last 20 years. I think it's very important to remember that French influence in West Africa automatically short-circuits any African Union input, because not only will they be dealing with a Western power in France, but also the multilateral institutional backing in the form of the EU. Now, the European Union happens to be an organization that the AU looks to for capacity building and support. So, in a sense, is the AU not stuck between a rock and a hard place? Because the trouble is, um, a lot of Francophone West African natives see this French presence as a continued imperialist imposition, which in turn drives Islamist extremist narratives, but also can be leveraged as a propaganda tool for coups, because the African Union works on end goals. The focus is 
being a one-stop shop that congregates Africa to remind the continent on the need to act of its own best interest rather than relying on maybe the West or other forces. While it's great to have that collaboration, I think the coups are a result of a seeming renaissance to the colonial period, which of course so many countries have worked so hard to move past. So I think it's a bit of a push and a pull, and it's not so easy to say the AU isn't doing as much as it should, but there is a delicate nature to these kind of conflicts. And while you want to, of course, support the African countries, it's very difficult when there is um, a French president that is doing a lot on ground. Ambassador Mwencha. Even even, even, even talking on that point, uh, if you could allow, um, you know, with the onset of the African Union, there is a very strong chapter on uh, democracy, governance, and uh, and elections. And and indeed, many countries have have, have already acceded to this charter, which is also a, a separate charter from the Constitutive Act, which established the EU. And in, in terms of implementation, uh, if you look at the elections that have taken place in Africa since 1990s, it's not a glass is half empty. The glass is half full. You see quite a number of countries that are now moving towards having genuine, free, and fair elections. But of course, one must also say, there have been sham elections in Africa, and that is accepted. Um, and, and, but democracy is not an event, it's a process. And so Africa has recognized that, and, and it's alive the fact that this is a process, and that's why there is effort to try and help countries to look at economic issues, because you cannot have democracy without development. They go hand in hand. You need peace, democracy, and development. And when there is one absent, then the other for us. So, Lou, do you feel that uh, what is happening under the radar is enough, though, to um, support the various African countries that are going through turmoil? I think, again, it's, 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 it, there's no one-stop fix. If the African Union were to enlist um, an African Union army and kind of send that army to conflict-ridden countries in Africa, let's say starting with Mali, I think that in turn presents a whole separate set of issues. So I think when you're dealing, especially when we're dealing with insurgencies of an Islamist extremist nature, those campaigns are to win the hearts and minds of your population. So it's to build infrastructure, um, drive education, lower infant um, mortality rates, things like that would help. It's not just just kind of taking a, a military or guerrilla warfare approach is a very, it's putting a band-aid over um, a gunshot wound. It wouldn't do much to help the actual inherent problem within that country and or region. So I think it's, it's like I mentioned and like Ambassador mentioned, the fact that the AU is, and I will keep circling back to this because it is so important, building integration plans as seen in the African continental free trade area. Um, and, you know, the 1991 treaty that we saw signed in Abuja for the African economic community, these things are huge steps in the right direction because there really is a need to get countries and regional blocs working in silos first um, to a place where they can understand this integration in their own space before moving to a wider context, which is Africa-wide, which, of course, then is the mandate of the African Union. I think there's only so much that can be done once at a, one step at a time, and I think focusing on democracy, good governance, 
and economic stability, right. even towards a place where we have one single currency. Things like that, when you have political unrest and insurgencies, of course that's stabilizing the continent's economy. So things like that, I think, are longer-term goals that help um, in, in the long run. Very insightful discussion indeed. Do stay with us because we're going to take a short break now, but do stay tuned. Talk Africa continues in a moment. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Ambassador Erastus Mwencha is still with me in Nairobi and Tolu Akerele in London are still our panelists today. Let's continue with this discussion. And Ambassador Mwencha, I want to look briefly at, at some of the other targets that uh, the African Union had uh, put in place uh, about a decade ago, the target of silencing the guns by uh, 2020. That was two years ago. That target has since been uh, pushed forward, going by developments in the Horn of Africa region and, you know, at, at Capo Delgado in Mozambique. What's your reaction? I think let's put that in context. But uh, when in uh, 2013 Africa celebrated the 50th anniversary of uh, its uh, establishment of the AU, OAU, uh, Africa then set in motion to have a re-look into what should be the future and therefore the first word was known as Agenda 2023. Under Agenda 2023, uh, there were a number of frameworks were developed. Uh, there were flagship projects, some of which, like the Continental Free Trade Area, Continental Infrastructure Program, uh, Program for uh, Open Skies, the Program for Education, Health, and the rest. And, and the Peace and Security is one of them. Where then there was agreed that it, by 2020, there should 2022, uh, all guns should be silenced. Now, many people have understood the meaning of silencing guns. Silencing guns did not mean there would be no conflict, but that if there are conflicts, they should be resolved without having to go into a civil war. Uh, and, and, and I must say, uh, a lot is being done in this area to move to achieve this target, but also to acknowledge that in a number of countries, uh, the hotspots still remain, and this is quite still a challenge to the African Union. Tell you, the mechanisms seem to exist. Are they working? I think, again, it's very difficult to quantify whether something is working or not. There are so many factors that go into play when we talk about whether it's West African, North African, South African, East African insurgencies and conflicts. We can have um, Islamic extremism in West Africa that is completely different to the Islamic extremism we see in East Africa. So I think in terms of whether it's efficient and effective, I think it's difficult to quantify. I wouldn't say it's not effective. Um, I also think there's always a place for continual improvement. Um, 
nobody ever does anything perfectly, nor do they do it perfectly the first time around. So I think the fact that steps are being made and efforts are being made, it's very commendable. And I think the African Union does a very good job right. within, again, its limitations. Ambassador Mwancha, in terms of those me mechanisms that are in place, can you give us some examples of, of where they have been effective or efficient? Right. Um, if you look at what has happened, for instance, in the case of, uh, um, you know, uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, um, you know, where you had the ECOMOG play a very strong role there, uh, you have also had uh, a similar situation that has been deployed in the case of uh, 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 even South Sudan. You have had interventions that have been there to help, and the process still continues. Uh, but also of recent, um, a number of efforts have been deployed to safeguard, particularly where there is a likelihood of election uh, leading up to violence. And a number of them may not even be uh, visible because this diplomacy is not, as I said, is not mega diplomacy. It is, it is diplomacy that is done by a former head of state going to talk to a sitting head of state. And if we don't put it that, that is the newspapers to show that Africa is talking to head of state is what they are discussing. So the mechanism does one. But as 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 Tim Tsolo said, we are not here to say oh, Africa even is perfect, everything is not perfect. We all know there are challenges. Some of it is external. For instance, if you look at the economic uh, challenges, Africa has made huge strides in the economic arena. But there are also major, major problems, and, and, and the international community does not help uh, in, in this. Uh, they continue to see Africa as a market, that you exploit the raw materials, process them, and then bring back finished materials. And, and you can see how low the transition is. So Africa has many huge, and huge challenges that it's looking at. And so it is not, you cannot just concentrate on peace and security, because if your development doesn't work, it, it, it's linked to peace. So it is all these things moving fast, but indeed. And, and, and this is not uh, just beating ourselves a grandiose effort, you know, congratulations, but to acknowledge there is effort, but yes, there is room for improvement. And, and Africa's uh, focus this year, Ambassador Mwancha, very briefly, uh, is the AU theme of 2022, which is touching on building resilience in nutrition and accelerating human capital, social and economic development. Why the focus on this uh, particular theme this year? I mean, amidst the background of everything else that is going on, the peace and security issues, the COVID-19 issues, why this particular focus? Right. Um, first, the greatest dividend that Africa has it is human resource, uh, the 1.3, 1.4. And if you look at the population of Africa, a lot of our children, particularly under age five, uh, are malnourished, uh, and uh, there is also a general, uh, you know, indication of undernutrition in many malnutrition in many many uh, communities, and and you cannot achieve much in terms of your education, your health. Indicators if nutrition is also lacking, in fact, they go hand in hand. And, and Africa is sitting, uh, Triton, uh, 
very good resources of land, but we also face challenges because of climate change and the rest. But staying on the course of that, nutrition is a major, major contributor to whether one can achieve uh, good health, but also good education and the rest. And I think this is uh, important. And then it's also linked to agriculture and the rest. So this is a very important goal that is really looking at the human index. At the end of the day, this is really human-centered. And this is a focus to show how Africa is looking at. Development is about human beings. And this is, at the end of the day, it's people, which is the greatest resource Africa has. All right. I want to get some of your winding up comments. And to, let me start off with you. Um, as the uh, African Union uh, Summit uh, winds down, what are your expectations from this year's summit? Oh, that's a, that's a powerful question. I think, for me, I, don't, I personally don't have any expectations from the summit. I don't, and I don't say that in a negative way. I say that in the sense that, just like Ambassador has mentioned, um, there are so many different problem areas in Africa. And I think to maybe say one is more important than the other, or one, because it's in our face, more like security and peacekeeping, it should take prevalence over something that's so inherent to Africa, like malnutrition, which we should really have conquered decades ago. So I think for me, the expectation is just to keep having these kind of discussions, to keep having um, strengthened partnerships on the continent, to keep driving things that we're doing well and acknowledge them, such as FinTech. You know, you have great strides in FinTech, like Paystack or Flutterwave, or all these FinTechs that are now getting um, attention from the West. Um, whether it's the U.S. Or, or Europe, I think we need to also appreciate the things that we do very well, and I think we need to pour more resources and backing into that. That would probably be my only personal expectation, but I think um, what's important is to keep having um, cross-regional collaboration and keep having these discussions and driving um, our economies and really helping Africans understand that we can help ourselves and we don't need to keep looking for external guidance, and we have the tools to solve the problems ourselves. Ambassador Mwenta Tulu um, raises an important question, an interesting issue there, that uh, the continent should have eradicated malnutrition, uh, you know, decades ago. But then again, what are your expectations from this year's summit? This conference is happening against the backdrop of a major pandemic, and which has also shown the rest of the world go regional. Uh, disrupting uh, global supply chains, and which has affected Africa. But beyond that, Africa was left hanging there because Africa could not even have access to vaccines and the rest. But a few friends of Africa already came to its rescue. And so I think this is a very good opportunity for the, 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 the summit to, to look at this issue of uh, research and development, but also vaccine, intellectual property, and dialogue with the rest of the world but also to send a message to the rest of the world that no one is safe until all of us are safe. And I think this is the folly that you saw in the West. But in addition to that, I want to agree with what Tuarua said, that this the continent is faced with many challenges. Uh, and we cannot say one is, you know, supersedes the other. Africa must keep on working at it, but of course also look at those areas where there is pushback like what you have said in the area of uh, governance and democracy. And, and I think governance is a major issue where Africa should now ask itself, how are we using our resources? 
How are we making sure we address the issue of population, issue of inclusiveness? Some of these conflicts that we have, it is because of lack of inclusivity. It's because of lack of development. But where we see infrastructure coming, uh, food is available on the table, the employment is declining, the population is healthy. These are the things that Africa should be continuing to work on. Indeed, thank you so much for being a part of this discussion. And that's all we have time for this week on the program. A big thank you to our guests for their exhaustive insights on this subject. Ambassador Erasat Wencha, a former Deputy Chairperson of the African Union Commission, joining us from Nairobi. Tulu Akerele, a consultant in counter-terrorism, joining us from London. Now remember you can engage us further on this subject through our social media platforms on Twitter and Facebook and also catch this and more episodes of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. See you again next time. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Goodbye. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, that was uh, Talk Africa uh, from CGTN uh, discussing the uh, current uh, African Union 35th uh, Ordinary Summit that is taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And uh, you can read about uh, the AU Summit and other issues discussed on this program over the Pan-African Newswire, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. You can have access to this program, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, for Saturday, uh, February 5th, uh, 2022, by going to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was Marsha Hunt uh, with the song entitled Black Flower. Our final segment uh, deals uh, with the current public health situation taking place on the African continent. Uh, We're going to listen to a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It is an affiliate uh, of the African Union uh, where we just discussed the 35th Ordinary Summit of the African Union that is taking place right now as we speak. And uh, we're going to listen to the Director General of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Nkangason. Uh, let's listen in. Later on, when you see a peak in number of cases, uh, it doesn't always translate immediately to death because people are sick, they go to the hospital, then they start dying uh, subsequently. So I think that is why you have the number of the, the case, the new cases increasing and declining, and then the number of deaths uh, followed a little bit, uh, takes time before the, the decline. They will subsequently decline if we don't have outbursts. In terms of testing, about 95,000, uh, 95 million, I beg pardon, total number of tests have been conducted. With last week, about 1.1 million uh, tests conducted cumulatively. Uh, the case positivity rate on them remains high at about 11.0%. Uh, With regards to vaccine supplies, a total of 597 million doses of vaccines have been delivered in 54 member states. And of that number, 380 million doses have been administered. Uh, that is representing uh, 64% of the overall um, doses. Uh, for those who have received full uh, immunization, that is the uh, two doses of the, the vaccine or the one shot from the Johnson & Johnson, about 11.3% of the population are now fully uh, vaccinated. Uh, Egypt has vac- fully vaccinated about 25.8% of its population, Morocco, 62.5%, South Africa, 28%, uh, Mozambique, 31%. And I think that those are just to always give you an indication that uh, some progress is being made in some countries. And the situation of the average of 11% is really like averaging everything that is going on in the 55 member states. A total of um, 37 million doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccines have now been delivered. And um, the MasterCard donations are beginning to hit the member states with about 12.8 million doses in kind donated by member states through uh, by uh, the MasterCard Foundation slash Africa CDC collaboration uh, donated through uh, the AVAT. And now about the um, <clears throat> initiative that in the process of um, launching, I've said earlier this year that there are four axis of uh, focus for the continent to fight this pandemic. One is vaccination, increase and scale up of vaccination, because as I indicated earlier, vaccines are becoming readily available on the continent. The second is the testing. How do we scale up testing? And then that leads to treatment, which is the third, and then the prevention measures there. So I'm very pleased to say that in order to increase our vaccination effort, we will be launching a campaign with the youths. Uh, we're calling it African Youth uh, for <coughs> COVID-19 Vaccination Initiative for Saving Lives, Saving Livelihoods, 
which is part of that um, overall umbrella initiative. So, again, uh, the initiative will be the African Youth for COVID-19 Vaccination Initiative. And our uh, youth um, envoy <clears throat> was supposed to be here to expand on that, but she is caught in traffic. We are hoping that in course of this uh, discussion, she will be able to join. It will be an important initiative because uh, we have to recognize that the median age of the population in Africa is uh, about 19 and a half years. So, so many young people make up the, make, uh, 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 constitute the population of the continent. And at least 70% of the population is uh, less than uh, 30 years old. So we really have to to play an active role in in up of the vaccination in terms of mobilizing their peers and reach and reach out. So that is why that initiative is we believe is very 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 important and very timely. The second thing that we would like to um, launch is an initiative that will uh, begin to create an opportunity uh, in this very early phase to attract. Africans who are in the diaspora to come back and, and, and support uh, our efforts in the pandemic response going forward. They have been doing an amazing job supporting but online, but we are looking for opportunities to create an enabling environment so that they can come spend uh, three months to six months uh, in a rotation program, uh, which uh, we'll call it uh, the Kofi Annan Scholar Program. Uh, if you all recall, we launched the Kofi Annan uh, uh, program, which has three pillars. One is the Global Leadership Program, and we've graduated the first cohort and recruited the second cohort. Uh, the scholar program had not started, and so this will be uh, a, an opportunity to start that scholar program where you get an African who is somewhere out of the continent and wishes to contribute, who work with us, who facilitate that, uh, uh, pay for their tickets, their living expenses, and they can come, and we embed them in one of the national public health institutes. So that is the second. The last initiative is really uh, what we are calling democratizing uh, rapid testing, where we really are going to be promoting and launching a self-testing campaign so that the, the communities and the population take ownership of their own uh, testing and take the appropriate measures. Uh, if we do that, we believe uh, and democratize self-testing. It will provide an enabling environment for people to know their status, and if they know their status, they can take appropriate measures to stay home, protect themselves, protect their loved ones, and protect uh, their, their communities. So even if they go out, they, they make sure they're, they, they're aware that they're positive and they can actually uh, take appropriate uh, measures. I think that is the direction Africa CDC is going. So in the coming weeks and days, you begin to hear more about these initiatives and we'll uh, do proper formal launching of each of these uh, initiatives in partnership, of course, with uh, other um, uh, our usual partners and, and donors that we are working with. So when thank you, those, those are the updates. As I said, uh, uh, you will be contacted uh, to announce that it will be a special briefing during this summit after the head of state have at least provided some guidelines and directions. Over to you, Thank you very much. That was Dr. John Nkenasong of the Africa CDC. It is now time for our question and answer session. And uh, before we move into that, let me just give you that WhatsApp number. It is the plus 251-94-550-2310. Plus 251-94. 
0242-222-2310. Alternatively, you can come through on our question and answer section, as well as come through live, as Paul Adepoju has done. Paul, good morning. Please go ahead with your question. Hello, good morning, and um, thanks uh, for this opportunity to ask my question. Uh, so the first question I have um, has to do with uh, testing. And um, I remember two weeks ago, Dr. Jones said um, the continent is not facing uh, any testing shortage. But um, there a letter that was sent to WHO this week showed that huge um, gaps uh, still exist uh, in testing. For instance, uh, the proportion of testing being done in Africa in comparison to the rest of the world. So while we are, you've announced a number of initiatives to rapidly improve vaccine coverage, uh, I would like to know uh, your thoughts regarding the gap that still seems to exist uh, regarding uh, COVID uh, testing too. And the second question I have has to do with um, uh, inquiry regarding the youth focus initiative that you've announced. Do we have uh, available data on the demography of COVID-19 vaccination, uh, maybe age groups, uh, uh, vaccination coverage uh, across age groups, which can provide better indication of the priority. Then my last question is, what do you expect uh, out of the AU event uh, that is happening? And uh, if you can comment on the African Medicines Agency uh, agenda, um, do we have any indication of whether uh, this particular session is going to bring uh, any advancement in that uh, issue, in addition to what the Africa CDC expects uh, from the event? Thank you. Thank, thank you, Paul. All extremely uh, valuable questions. In terms of COVID testing, let, let us be very clear. We, from where we sit, we have seen a remarkable uh, uh, change and improvement in access to testing. I mean, let me just use uh, the African Union and Africa CDC as an example. We are here in the middle of the, um, uh, the, the, the AU summit, and we are characterizing it as a COVID-free uh, 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 summit, which means that every day, and I mean every day, we conduct testing. Okay, we conduct testing on all the delegates that come into this, uh, uh, this compound. For, for the, and those are thousands of people that are conducted. And um, we have not run out of tests. So it only shows you that if, um, the, the, if people are, uh, uh, countries are really um, keen and wanted to uh, take up the guidelines that we are giving them, uh, they will be they will find testing. I think we have not struggled with access to tests. The key is at the country level, are they prioritizing the testing, which I think we at Africa CDC is saying that it's a cornerstone. You heard me, uh, Paul, define the four different axes of focus uh, in 2022. Testing is key because that is, if we have to have access to treatment, you have to test so that people test and they actually can get some uh, a treatment like the Paxlovid and Monopiravid, uh, all drugs that are coming up and we are negotiating with all of this. So again, testing will continue to be um, a key. We see the test numbers fluctuate. Uh, some weeks you have a very high increase in testing and then the following week you see a decrease. But that, that doesn't necessarily reflect lack of tests, but it reflects the testing itself. Our countries actually engage in testing or they are doing selective testing, which most of the case is about people who have symptoms or people who are trying to travel or in some settings, but it's not been really systematic uh, testing going on. 
So uh, this is your second question on vaccine uh, vaccination. Needless to explain what I said earlier, or to expand on that, that our population structure uh, speaks to a very uh, young population, and, until, and unless we engage the, the youth into this campaign, we'll be missing out a lot because they may end up being a population that is not fully vaccinated and will be the reservoir for uh, the, the rest of the, the, their communities. So we, I don't have the data uh, yet on the age-specific um, vaccination, but that is something that I'm, I will ask my team to um, engage a vaccination unit so that they can actually analyze the data in that direction and see and stratify it by age group so that we can actually share the information with you uh, subsequently. So I think uh, this is a point well noted that I'm directing to my own uh, team. Um, the expectation from the AU event, is, I mean, on Saturday, President Ramaphosa, who is the COVID champion, and of course, uh, the President of the Republic of South Africa, will be uh, presenting a very comprehensive COVID uh, uh, report. The COVID report will cover um, several aspects, but again, I don't want to preempt his report, but once uh, he presents that report, uh, immediately following that, we will have a press conference to expand on that and discuss it um, uh, further. But expect that, uh, just to give you some highlight, that the issues related to uh, vaccination will be a very uh, take high uh, a priority in the discussion. How does the, how uh, the, do we work with the head of state to really governize the continent so that they can actually uh, continue to show leadership in expanding vaccination in their country so that we get to the um, 70% uh, target. On Ahmad, uh, I'm not, uh, Ahmad doesn't come uh, into the jurisdiction of Africa CDC, so I, I'll unfortunately not be able to uh, speak on uh, the issues of Ahmad. But suffice to say that the, uh, you know that the, it has been ratified, uh, the treaty uh, uh, has been ratified thanks to the extraordinary work that Michel Sidibe did. Uh, the next steps uh, will be discussed uh, during this uh, meeting. But again, I'm not privileged to much information on, on AMA issues. All right. Uh, thank you very much, John. We go now to questions that are coming through on our question and answer section. And um, these are both from writers. So let me start with uh, James Macharia Chege. James says, on Monday, South Africa changed its isolation guidance saying that those who test positive for COVID-19 but have no symptoms do not need to isolate. Preliminary findings from two South African clinical trials suggest that the Omicron variant has a much higher rate of asymptomatic carriage than earlier variants. Then his questions, and he has two. What is your take on the decision by the South African government? And do you think that the South African government is playing with fire. Now, related to that is um, Alexander Winning's uh, questions, and Alexander is also with uh, Reuters. So she says, the regulatory provision for social distancing of one meter for learners in schools in South Africa has also been removed. Is this throwing caution to the wind? And secondly, last week you said we are still in a pandemic mode and not endemic with COVID-19. Do you think that the new rules in South Africa suggest that we are approaching endemic status 
in that country. So those are two very related um, <clears throat> questions yeah. from colleagues at Reuters. No, sure. Extremely uh, important questions. And uh, let me confess that I have not seen the guidelines in South Africa. And again, you agree with me that it is very, very, um, it would not be appropriate to discuss uh, guidelines that you have not seen. And the risk is that you may be taking, uh, talking out of context. For example, I don't know what was actually set in the guidelines with respect to being asymptomatic and not uh, isolating, uh, things uh, like that. And also the one meter, the, I'm sure that the guidelines don't just say that uh, if you are symptomatic, you don't, you, you don't get isolated. There must be some a, a text that uh, provides a rationale behind that. So I would ask my team to pull out those guidelines so that we can read them and uh, hopefully uh, discuss it more on uh, Saturday again just being uh, uh, as cautious as possible that we do not jump into um, conclusions from outside without uh, a full knowledge of what uh, the guidelines have said. So uh, we take we take it for me that we will look into that and get back to you. Uh, let me just repeat what I said last week. We are still in the pandemic. And the, the concept of that we, uh, uh, that if something is not done, we go into an endemic situation, I think is creating uh, 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 communication is challenges in, in what we really mean by an endemic disease. Let me again uh, provide some definitions around that. Uh, you, you speak of, of an endemic situation where you have brought down the burden of the disease to a certain level, minimum level that you can cope with in the community and that you only begin to see sporadic occurrence of that situation. That is what we really mean in public health by endemicity. I think I really want that definition to be there. But if today we say that with 11% uh, positivity rate and the severity of what we are seeing now, that is the wave that keep coming and going, uh, we, have, we have now moved into an endemic situation. The, it, is not, it doesn't meet the definition of endemicity. It only means that we, are, we have admitted that we are going to live with that pandemic okay, for, for long. So that is just what it means. It means that we have failed to control the pandemic. We are living with a pandemic. It's very diff diff different from saying that it is an endemic uh, situation. I just want to clarify that, uh, that those definitions. There. So no, it is in no one's interest that we, we admit that we are going to be living with a situation where we are dealing with 11% uh, positivity rate for, for COVID. It is disruptive. It's tea killing. We know many people, that loved ones around us that have died because of this uh, virus. So the pandemic is here, and it is as brutal as it was uh, a few months ago in terms of people that are being killed uh, uh, from this pandemic. Adi, um, just the, within the commission itself, we've had people, colleagues that have died just recently because of, of COVID. So I think we are taking it very, very seriously. And that's why we are very aggressive in during this conference to ensure that we, have, we conduct uh, what we are calling a COVID-free summit. And we test every day and I would We'll be uh, uh, happy to tell you that uh, just yesterday when the summit started uh, with um, the ministers of foreign affairs, we, we captured four cases out of the thousand that we tested. But imagine if we didn't test those four and they were all moving around in the, uh, the, the conference, they would be infecting others. So I think because of that systematic screening, we are rooting up out those that have been infected and then they, they isolate, they self-isolate. And within the next couple of days, I'm sure they will repeat their test and they should be able to to contribute or to travel back to their respective countries. 
All right, so thank you very much for that detail. Let's go to our WhatsApp platform and say hello to Leanne Dibasso. Leanne doesn't tell us um, from where, from which country, but she's with the Bloomberg. And she says, do you have any new information or data on the new Omicron sub-variant? Uh, no, we, uh, we do not. And I was just requesting for that information uh, today from the, the team. And uh, if you send us your uh, address, I'm sure that uh, once the analysis is done, uh, you will have that. One of the things you need to be, we need to be, uh, I just want to make sure that is clear is that we do not, uh, we, we verify, re-verify and verify all information. So it takes time to collect from member states, do the verification so that when we put the information out there, it is the accurate information that we are sharing. So we've not had uh, the, um, the good fortune of analyzing and knowing uh, what the BA, uh, uh, the, the Omicron BA.2 uh, is uh, the, the extent of the spread. But that information should be difficult for us to get in the coming days. All right. So thank you very much. Um, hello to Sarah Jervin. You want to come through live. Sarah, please go ahead. Thanks so much. Um, where are the resources coming for these three initiatives, and um, where do the self-tests come from? Will there be pooled procurement? Um, how will you increase acceptance among the youth? What will be the strategies around that, and how will you recruit uh, the diaspora? Thank you. No, sure. I think that so the, the self-testing is, uh, uh, we will be issuing uh, guidance on this. In the coming days, you see us send out uh, like a one-pager to define what we're doing, and uh, subsequently a full guidance will go to countries. I think our South Africa CDC will procure uh, uh, tests to support uh, uh, countries as, as we have been doing. I think uh, with us, we have uh, President Ramaphosa will be giving this number tomorrow. About 16 million antigen tests have actually been rolled out uh, in the last couple of months by Africa CDC. But we do not and have never uh, pretended to replace countries. All we're doing as a public health agent, agency is to demonstrate that it can be done. And then we expect that countries will pick that up and work with their partners to, to implement those uh, guidance that we put out there, those policy guidance. So, again, the short answer to your question is that we will do secure as, as, as we can, support countries, uh, but then expect that countries will follow that uh, the guidance that we are providing as they have done all through this um, pandemic. And that, again, is an area of interface where uh, the youth program uh, can help, the vaccination program. The, in terms of resources, remember we have uh, a, a very strong partnership with the MasterCard Foundation. It's a $1.5 billion partnership entitled Saving Lives, Saving Livelihoods. So anything that we can do to increase vaccination uptake can be supported within the context of that um, uh, program. And that will include, of course, this youth program that we are uh, launching, will be launching. I really hope that um, the, the youth envoy will be here to join us to say a few words to you all so that you can see the excitement that is characterizing this um, new initiative. We believe strongly in it and I'm passionate uh, that, uh, and, and hopeful that it can truly be transformational in the way that we engage youth to contribute in the vaccination exercise. I think those were the two questions, right? Yes, yes. All right, we move on to Judith Akolo, and uh, Judith is with Kenya Broadcasting Corporation in Nairobi. She says, Dr. Song, thank you for clarifying on why we are seeing more deaths 
yet the number of cases is coming down. However, I have two questions. First, did we really succeed on the social aspect of helping to sensitize the public on the need to prevent COVID-19 transmission? Then secondly, what will make the youth join in the efforts to get vaccinated when they are the ones that still went to villages even after being told that they might compromise the health of the elderly. And they are also the ones that have continuously put on face masks, face masks only when they see the police. So, Judith, as always, very good questions. I think, um, have we succeeded in uh, implementing public health measures uh, in, with respect to the public? Uh, engagement, I think the answer is largely yes. But you also have to admit that we've lived with this pandemic now for two years, and there's been a considerable uh, uh, waning of uh, compliance with public health measures. I mean, that we, we see that every day. You see it in Nairobi or wherever you are in Kenya. I see it across the continent. In Ethiopia, for example, when um, this pandemic just started, I used to drive around the city. Of, of Addis just on the weekends just to see myself how, how, many, how, how many people were masking. Of course, you don't see that um, a, a lot of masking the way that it was uh, early on. And, and you can uh, fully explain this because of what we call the pandemic uh, fatigue, uh, uh, the prevention fatigue of people wearing masks all the time and, and, and just the fact that the pandemic has gone on for two years. But it is not because we are tired that the pandemic is tired. The pandemic is here with us. The virus is circulating. It's in the community. So my appeal to the population is still the four things that we put forward there. Prevention, using social distancing as much as possible, um, washing of hands, wearing of masks, support vaccination, support treatment, uh, uh, and testing there. So those are the key elements that uh, we know they work against all variants. I think... Um, so again, my appeal to the public is that uh, do not, if you offer the virus an opportunity, it will spread. And yeah, another thing I must say, Judith, is that we are making good progress with this the five years. Just two years ago, it was almost uh, unimaginable that we'll have a summit, a face-to-face summit uh, here in the Mandela Hall. Two years ago, or one and a half year ago, it was impossible to believe that we, uh, we can organize the African Nation Cup in Cameroon. But we are doing that with full backing of the new interventions that have come in, i.e. vaccines and the testing. As we speak, uh, Africa CDC has a, a large team in Cameroon that is working with the Confederation of African uh, Football, the CAF, uh, to support the, the daily testing. And, and to, uh, uh, when people get into the stadium, testing is done. Africa CDC is there supporting. Vaccination is being done. And we have seen a rapid uptake of vaccination in Cameroon during this period of, of, of um, the, the African Nation Cup. Those are all measures that are being put in place to supplement the, the, um, the public health measures that uh, we've lived with for two years, and clearly the population is getting tired uh, because of that. In terms of new sensitization, absolutely, it is exactly because of the reasons that you mentioned that we must engage the youth. Okay, I mean, in public health, you have to solve the problem with the population. And, and, and not without the population. So if there, we see that there are challenges in the youth population, we have to engage them. What, how we do this, we, we engage directly, talk to the uh, 
population, the youth population, and they themselves will guide us with respect to what we can do uh, in the population. If we develop champions within the youth population, they will tell us what to do, share the, 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 some cultural context and the sociology that governs those, uh, those communities. And no one community is the same. That's why this uh, youth program will enable us to reach out to many countries and work with them so that we can develop key messaging that will be context-specific and not just develop a broad guidelines for, for such uh, efforts. There. So, again, with, uh, the youth might be uh, problematic, but I remain optimistic that any public health um, challenge that by engaging them, creating champions, and sustaining our communication efforts with them, they will actually uh, begin to be, we can turn them around and they, they, they work for us and become the agents of change for this um, vaccination and testing. Thank you very much. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, that uh, briefing uh, was held just two days ago. And, uh, of course, uh, the afternoon 35th Ordinary Summit is taking place right now in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And uh, we'll have more information on uh, this afternoon summit uh, in our future broadcast. If you want to read about the Afternoon Summit and other issues impacting the African continent and the African world as a whole, just go to the Pan-African Newswire. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And we're going to be winding down our program uh, for today, uh, Saturday, February 5th, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to another edition of our program. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll close out uh, with the music of John Coltrane and Duke Ellington. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.